Hi, it's Zoe, and welcome to the podcast. If you're a first-time listener, you are very much welcome here. Thanks for listening. And if you're a return listener, thanks so much for supporting the show. I really appreciate it. I am really thrilled to introduce our next guest. She is an extraordinary leader. Her name is Maureen Allison. She is Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer at Johnson & Johnson. She's had an, an amazing career across very different fields. Uh, at the moment, she is responsible for protecting the company's information technology systems and data worldwide through elimination and mitigation of cybersecurity risks. So she's heading up cybersecurity at J&J. Prior to that, she worked as Chief Security Officer and Vice President for Medco, where she oversaw all aspects of security and regulatory compliance. And she did some really cool things before that. Um, she was Head of Global Security at Avea and secured the World Cup Network in Korea and Japan in 2002. So back in the day, <laughs> doesn't seem that long ago, so she's been in the security thing for a long time. Before that, though, she worked as an FBI special agent, and we'll hear a little bit about that extraordinary part of her world. She worked on undercover drug operations, terrorist bombings, and a mock nuclear terrorism exercise. She got her Bachelor's of Science degree from the United States Military Academy at West Point in the first class to include women, and we're definitely going to share some insights from her, her time there. She served as U.S. Army and the Military Police, as well as on the Defense Advisory Committee on Women and Services and the Overseas Security Advisory Committee. She is a trailblazer. So she has been the first of many in many different fields, and she's had some amazing insights about leadership and what it takes to lead in very difficult circumstances and very complex ones. So welcome, Maureen. Yay! I'm so excited to be here with you, Maureen. It was wonderful to meet you in Sydney when you came to speak at the conference where I got to interview you there. And I'm thrilled to bring your story and your insights to the podcast. So welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. And where are you? Because all I've got on the screen is this beautiful, looks like a beautiful country view out the window. Look at that. That's spectacular. Where are you? Um, I'm actually in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. Oh, uh, we're working at home today and uh, got in late from Florida yesterday. So I thought I would stay home and I'm in Pennsylvania, leaving the spring of Australia to come to the winter of Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The long, dark winters, as I was saying, I do not miss those at all, really. Apart from being able to ski every day in the winter, that was kind of good. But the long digging out cars, no, nah, thanks. I'm happy to leave that behind. <laughs> Yeah, commuting in winter is not fun. Well, you do a lot of commuting in your role as head of, well, CISO at Johnson & Johnson. You've had such an illustrious career, and it has had really interesting beginnings. I'd love to start there. So you decided to go to West Point Military College with the first intake of female recruits. Why did you decide to enter the military and go to military college way back then? Well, at the time, it, that would have been 1976. I lived in Halifax, Massachusetts, on the East Coast of the United States, and they were in a recession. And my first choice was actually go to a all-woman school, Wellesley, um, outside of Boston. And they had their quota of white females from Southeastern Massachusetts and uh, couldn't afford to pay full rides, so looked at opportunities and had a discussion with my father about potentially uh, going in the military and what that would look like. 
And so I applied, uh, the academies had just opened up in the United States, the Air Force Academy, West Point, the military, uh, the Army, the Naval Academy, and Coast Guard Academy. And so I applied to go to the Air Force Academy. And Margaret Heckler, my Congresswoman, which you need a nomination from, she decided that I would be a great candidate to go to West Point. So I went to West Point. Oh, there you go. So from an all girls place to an all blokes place, except for the new the new female recruits. What was that like? Like the first year, first time they had women, uh, did they know what hit them? No, they didn't know what hit them. Uh, the change management that they had in place was horrendous. Uh, the superintendent who runs the place, he had basically told the cadets before we showed up that women would enter West Point over his dead body. And then 30 days later, we showed up. And so you had a lot of the cadets out on their summer training, not thinking that women were there or coming there. And then we showed up and they, many of them found out through the news. So it was a bit of a hostile reception. Uh, it was a very hostile reception. I would say the, you know, the cadets that uh, were there uh, when we first came in during the new cadet basic training or affectionately called Beast, Beast Barracks, they were very professional and very good. But many of the cadets, the rest of the Corps cadets coming back after the summer uh, were a bit hostile. Do they feel, do you think it was a challenge to their masculinity to have women in the college? I think it was a challenge to the culture of the army, to what everyone knew as convention. Women were less than two or three percent of the armed forces at the time. So we were not only changing and you you have what, uh, 18 to 21, 22 year old men or boys that now girls were going to be there and be able to do what they what they had done, and it loses a little bit of the male mystique. And then the entire West Point uh, for all those hundreds of years had been all male uh, since 1802. And then all of a sudden now you had women there. It was a shock. Did you find that it made you want to work harder to be a success? Or did you just park that and ignore that whole sort of thing? Um, you know, at some point, I think you would, you would say, oh, it, it made you, I wanted to succeed. I wanted to graduate with a college degree and serve in the military. It was just another obstacle. And you have to understand at West Point, there's obstacles of the schedule, of the athletics, of the, the dean, of all the things you have to do. Uh, living in this confined environment for four or more years that would, it's almost like it's the odds are stacked up against you. And that was the same for the men as well as the women. And this was just an extra hurdle. Now, I will tell you that what it did is it defined femininity in my mind in that leaders don't have to be male or female, they're leaders. And what does it take to lead? So that was probably the most overriding thing is, is what do I need to succeed? And, you know, at first blush, everything is only done by males. Then it looks like the tasks are male tasks. And what you have to find out is 
A tank doesn't care who drives it or shoots it. A gun does not care who carries it. Those become things that we as humans put on the objects that you use in a military environment. Yeah, that's a really fascinating insight and really useful for you because you went on to serve in the military for a little while, yeah? Yes, I served for uh, six years and then got out and became a special agent in the FBI and then got into private uh, industry. Yeah, so t- I love this move into the FBI. And <laughs> the first time I asked you about this, I was like mesmerized. Um, so special agent in the FBI, all that undercover work, um, is it really like the TV shows? No, because in the TV shows, they, the, um, the surveillance lasts less like 10 minutes and surveillances can be for very long periods of time. So you're, you're looking at watching things for days and for weeks and for months to get that one piece of evidence that you need for a case. On TV, they all do that in 15 minutes or less. <laughs> it would be nice if it was that quick. It would make your life <laughs> accelerate. What was one of the most challenging experiences you had at the FBI? Um, the challenges at the FBI were not a whole lot different uh, than the Army at the time. Uh, there were less than 10% women in the FBI. And anytime you have less than 30% of one demographic in an organization, there's still a uh, the assimilation is very hard. So there was less than 10%. And there was a lot of, especially now with women coming from the military uh, into the FBI, that you somehow were a better FBI agent, which if you were a male and you had your identity was around being an FBI agent considered male, that sort of was a little bit of a shock uh, to some people. Yeah, right. Right. So how did the military environment compare with the FBI environment for as a leader who happens to be female? So in the, the, the FBI is, would probably be what you consider a quasi-military organization in the way that it's run, the hierarchy of it, it's associated with the government. And so if women could only have been in law enforcement in the United States, that was part of what Title IX did for women, is it opened up where women can serve. And part of that was in law enforcement. So it wasn't until 1972 that women were allowed to be commissioned law enforcement. And we're talking less than 10 years later that I show up as an FBI agent having come through the military. So not only the first at the, you know, at the academy at West Point, but then starting to be the new era of change in the FBI. That's not that long ago. Like, that's really quite remarkable. Um, I know, I I know. (laughs) So that's some 40, is it 40 years? 50, almost 50 years ago, I guess. 40 to 50 years ago. Uh, 40, 40. your math is wrong. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Two weeks ago. (laughs) How much has it changed or has it? Oh, it's dramatically changed. Uh, When I was in the army, you had very few women of flag rank, generals or colonels. They were very, very rare. In the FBI, you had very few women leaders of the organization that were uh, high up. Uh, Most of them were just uh, in in the field ranks. 
And I remember doing an undercover drug operation in Houston, Texas. That was one of the very few offices where there was a woman in charge of the office, which was very impressive, dirty person, personality. And I still remember that to this day because there she was leading this Houston field office of the FBI. And she was probably one of the first. And that would have been 1986, 87. Oh my no, goodness. 19, no, 1993. Oh my good. That, that's hardly a blink ago. Um, the first woman to lead an office like that. That's amazing. And now it's a bit more commonplace. I'm taking it. Yeah, it's, it's women seen as being able to lead in the law, law enforcement context is, uh, is very common now. So you took this ethos that you developed in military college, that a leader is a leader, whether they're male or female, and you held that as one of your core principles and attitudes in both the military career and then into the FBI that you took. Um, And then you moved out of the FBI into corporate land, if you like. How did your sense of leadership change, if at all, moving into the corporate world? Well, it's both the FBI and the military are very command and control. And as you move into corporate America, it's a much more collaborative environment. And that definitely changes your style. You cannot do it because I say it. You can do that, but people will only go follow so far versus the bringing people together finding out how to come up with the best solution, and then instilling everybody as a sense of ownership uh, to a common goal. I find that the people who have gone through a military experience who do make the transition into a corporate world find that particular aspect of the work quite challenging. So it's so much easier when you have command and control. You either give orders or you follow orders. And there is a certain element of simplicity to that, Uh, because collaboration is far more complex and there's a lot to navigate there. Um, What did you discover was helpful in learning how to do the collaboration piece? Probably the, the thing when you're a command and control leader, you're right, even when you're wrong. But in a collaborative environment, the group is always righter than you will ever be. So a percentage of time, over time, the group having multiple people come together with a solution is no matter how right or how smart or how good I am, I will not be as right as the bigger group. Was that an easy realization to come to or did it, did it take some time to get there? I needed a brick. <laughs> a brick? What yeah. do you mean? <laughs> right upside on the forehead. Right. I mean, to really it it took a while. It actually was a, a probably five or six years in corporate America. And I actually attended a leadership training seminar. And at the seminar, we did a collaboration exercise. And it really brought to light to me that a group of 10 people is going to have more right answers even than one person, even they're the most brilliant person on the planet. And it was just one of those epiphany moments where you go, oh, okay. And I just brought it with me. Uh, Didn't always put it into practice. You know, I think you you were going to ask me something around, you know, what's your greatest failure? I, I think my greatest failure was coming out of the military. I thought I had to be right. And it wasn't 
four, a couple of years later that I realized I didn't have to be right. The group had to be right. Did people give you feedback around that or did you just carry through, like keep your command and control attitude with you? Um, You know, I think people use terms like, well, you're a little still too military. Um, And, you know, and you go, what does that mean? Uh, People have a hard time articulating what is the thing that you really need. You know, we're talking back in the 90s, you know, uh, we're not talking about today when, you know, now is really more about collaboration and people working together, uh, diversity and inclusion. Um, I think a lot of those things that have come out over the last couple of years have brought to this, that inclusion piece. And today I wonder if I'd come out and people would talk to me about inclusion, unconscious bias, would I have been a better leader earlier? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. If we were aware of the things that we weren't aware 10 years ago or 15 (laughs) years ago, of course we'd be better. (laughs) But we, we carry with us our awareness at the time. That's an interesting one around diversity and inclusion. So what have you come to understood or appreciate around these principles of diversity and inclusion? How do you bring that to life in your work? Well, with a company like Johnson & Johnson, and we're worldwide, you have to look at each individual group and what your solutions are. I'm in IT. So people go like, well, why does it matter? We do business in China. We do business in Australia. We do business in Canada. And how you sell, how you do things has to be considered for where you're at. And many times having the people with the different diverse thoughts come together helps create much better conclusions of what needs to happen and how it should happen. That could, I can imagine that's, I mean, running a global company has got all those different issues with it because the the cultural ethics and the cultural values vary from country to country and as well as cultural practices. So what works in China won't work in the U.S., I'm guessing. Um, not always. Not always. <laughs> some things work, some things don't, I'm guessing. Um, and so that diverse perspective really helps to be flexible. What remains consistent in leadership across the organization? Integrity. Oh, yeah, um, you have to know what, you know, what you stand for and what it means and and how it applies to the organization you're in. How does it apply to Johnson & Johnson? So for me, a lot of what I do is around the security and protecting the data of our employees, our patients, our doctors, our nurses. So I know no matter what, I have to stand for them. And it doesn't matter whether it be in Australia or China or England, there will be different rules in each one of those countries around what you do for data, but you have to stand for protecting that data and following the rules around it. So people have um, understand how good J&J is and how we take our credo to heart. It's such a complex world, like uh, cybersecurity. How do you actually stay on top of all the, the new innovations that hackers have to try and breach your system? 
well, that's why I love security so much because in IT, you get to know a lot about a certain technology, then they change a the technology, and then you learn about that. In information security, it's more like a Rubik's Cube, and you have to understand what the type of data is being collected, how it's being used, um, and then all the requirements around to secure it. So the different, the hacker or the criminal or the nation state coming after the data is less important, um, what their tactics are, but around do what you do to protect it, does it prevent what they're trying to come after? Oh my goodness. You've dealt in the military and the FBI and now in cybersecurity in dealing with protection against people who would want to do harm in various forms, whether it's physical harm or cybersecurity form. What have you learned about the human psyche, like human psychology about, I want to say the bad guy, <laughs> but I don't know if you call him the bad guy, people who want to steal your stuff or do harm to you. What have you learned about the human mind? Um, the, the thing about the human mind is, is that no two people, even if you put them in the same circumstances, the same environment, the same whatever, will react the same. So it's not like IT. If you put a certain amount of electricity to it, you're going to get a certain reaction 100% of the time. Machines don't lie. But humans have this multiple dimension thing that you'll have to look at them and um, take each instant and activity as a different one. So you can't make generalizations, in other words, about about the criminal mind. No, you know, I, you know, I've seen instances uh, whether the criminal mind coming at, you know, it, that typically the criminal mind is, is I want to make money. I want to make money and I want to do it in an easy way. That's mostly the criminal mind. Then there's, you know, you could say people who want to do harm to others. That's not so much what I would call a criminal mind, but maybe a more of a mental issue that people have. People kind of lump them all together because yeah. of the laws of the world. It's called a criminal act. Or people will do it because of their beliefs. That would be more around terrorism. And so when you add those things up, you kind of have to look at what is the threat coming against you or nation states to put their dominance over others. And so, you know, much like what we've seen, and I think Australia has been a victim of this very recently, of hacking by China, is are they doing it for a criminal element or are they doing it to help China? And if you look back on it, they're doing it to help China. It's for their national policy. And so those are the things you have to look at and then how are you gonna protect against it? And then what is needed? Because corporations cannot defend against nation states all by themselves. They need their countries, they need their, their governments to also stand up and help them. I'm curious about your leadership philosophy. So you've been in leadership roles basically since you entered military college and had deep immersion into what does it mean to be a leader from, as you were saying earlier, the gun doesn't care whether you're a male or female, you're a leader. <laughs> and you've had this command and control ethos through the military that shifted to a collaboration style. What are some other leadership principles that you hold dear when you're leading and managing a team? Um, care more than others think you should. 
give more than people think you should. Be there for your team. Take any question. You don't always have to answer the question, but you should be there to take the question. People want someone that can uh, give them vision, give them hope, uh, people that inspire them. You have to believe in people even when they don't want to believe in themselves. You need to push them a little and then give them a shoulder when they need one. What was the most surprising thing that you learned in developing your leadership philosophy? So going from command and control to collaboration and then, you know, give more and care more, were these principles that, that were developed in the military or did they emerge later? Um, no, actually, it was pretty funny to think that the, you know, kind of the soft girl skills were the ones that were better leadership principles than the command and control ones. Uh, that was probably a day of reckoning. It was like, oh, wow. That, that's my natural who I am. And so that was what uh, helped me be successful and build high-performing teams. Absolutely. So I think it's interesting you call them soft girl skills. <laughs> well, they're just skills. They're not girl skills or boy skills. But, you know, in the old context of what people would consider leadership skills, you know, I, when, you, when you read some of them, you're, you're just like, okay. I thought we weren't supposed to do that because those were soft, but yeah, those are the ones that really, people want to be cared, you know, not cared for, but cared about that what they do matters, who they are matters. And those become very, very important. I think it's an interesting thing to, to think about, like you spend a lot of your career in defense against people who were trying to steal or harm. And then recruitment to get to a place where you trust your team, that you care for your team. That's an interesting thing. Like, how do you go, like, do you have a suspicious attitude towards people in general? And then you, your recruitment process is very uh, forensic in terms of assessing them? Or do you have an embracing approach to people first and then you weed people out after? Like, I'm curious about that. What's your natural attitude towards people when you meet them? Um, my natural attitude is to embrace people and where they come from, and then they'll tell me where they lie. So you'll tell me if I should trust you or not. You know, Zoe, just even in, you know, our conversations, that interviews, the five minutes before we got on stage in Sydney, I could kind of tell where you were coming from and everyone, your statements, your actions all supported that it was, wait a minute, I'm interested in leaders and, and what they have to say versus, you know, you're just using that as an ad campaign. Um, so that authenticity comes through very, very readily. And people show things, how they say things, how they act, how they look, how they interact. And 99% of the time, you can get a feel. And there'll be people, there's very rarely that I find somebody that like, oh, I really like that person. And then a month later, I'm like, eh, you know, what did I see? There may be things I don't like, but you kind of get a general feel for people. Now, of course, people might say, oh, well, once you form the opinion, everything supports that opinion. 
mm, no, I look at, I, I'm looking at it holistically. And people that you trust, you don't do it lightly. And I, I'm a trust but verify type of in the beginning. And then once you're in the trusted circle, it's just trust. And, and even though I may be suspicious of actions or, or why did this person do that, I still will trust them that their intent was good. And I, I got to tell you, 99.999% of the time, it comes to fruition. If you trust people for good, even if their intent might have not been, uh, they, will, they will come out on the good. That's interesting. Did they teach you like people reading skills in the FBI? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Interviewing an interrogation. Interrogation. Oh my God. Does this feel like an interrogation? <laughs> no, no, not at all. No, I used to do the interrogating. So yeah, um, that was one of the things I did have to learn is, is that once you, when you're starting to try to get information, I can tend to be very interrogating. So I have to tell my team is this like, hey, this has nothing to do with you. I'm just trying to get to in my brain how this all works. What's the most surprising thing that you've learned about people in general? There's nothing about people in general. <laughs> Every person is a unique human being. And there is no general. Look at every human being as a unique individual, and then what they bring to table. That's really a huge statement. And I'm thinking about, surely there must be patterns about people's behavior. Um, you're saying maybe there's patterns, but really each individual is unique. Doesn't matter where you're from. It's only when you look from afar, do you think people are um, the same? Oh, all those people from J&J, they're also caring because they have the credo. Or all those people from a certain place. All those, all those people from Australia are very athletic. <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> but once you pull back and you get an individual, then you start to see the human dimension and that's that diversity that makes each human. And as a leader, if you understand those individual characteristics, even though 10 feet back, everyone looks the same, you can see each one of the individual facets of that human, that person. That's what helps you as a leader because people know you see them as them, not as the person next to them, but as them. Oh, that's a beautiful philosophy. And that's why your teams love you so much. I know that you talked about having, when people come on your team, Team Marine, they tend to follow you and they keep staying with you. Um, why do you think that is? Um, you know, it's, again, because I care about them. I care about their families. I care about their careers. I care about the mission, the work that we do. And I'm always trying to do the right thing. That's very inspiring and very humble, too. Um, and it's very um, focused on others, outward-focused philosophy in terms of your leadership. I've got one last couple little questions for rapid fire and a bit of fun. Okay. What's your favorite book to recommend on leadership? Anything by Colin Powell. Yeah. Has he written many books? Yes, he has. 
he has one, it is just phenomenal. It talks about caring and all his work that he has done. Uh, you know, it's too bad the United States wouldn't put him as president. He's just such an awesome man. Okay, Colin Powell for president. <laughs> put that as a note. All right. Yeah, well, I don't think he does. He does have a book. Um, the other one that I find um, uh, really fascinating is uh, Duckworth's book on grit. Oh, yeah. 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 That is and of a- course, she, she did a lot of research at West Point and why some people do well and others don't. And it's that grit that inside, you know, maybe, you know, you don't have to be, you know, a PhD material, but you got that thing inside you that just keeps going. Yeah, I think you have that. <laughs> it sounds like to me, <laughs> just a little, yeah. <laughs> All right, last question. What superpower would you have if you could choose one? What superpower? I think I'd like to fly. I really hate airplanes. And it would be so nice to be a flight of one. <laughs> a flight of one. Yes. Yeah, screw this having to be holed up in a big cylinder with other with other people breathing heavy. <laughs> you just go out yeah, and, you know, and, off you go. and do, going through TSA and having to do transfers and going in and out of security. Just to fly all by myself would be awesome. <laughs> Fantastic. I love how a security officer wants the most ultimate freedom. <laughs> well, why not? <laughs> uh, absolutely. Reen, thank you so much for sharing your insights around leadership. Uh, your perspective is refreshing and inspiring. And congratulations for everything that you've achieved in your really fulsome, amazing career and that you continue to inspire leaders, not only in J&J, but people around the world. So thank you so much. Well, and thank you, Zoe. I appreciate it. You know, how cool was it that we meet on this little tiny stage in Sydney and to to develop into this program and all that you have done uh, for leaders is awesome. So thank you.
wow, there are so many different takeaways from that interview. It was quite extraordinary. First of all, it's very rare to meet a leader like Maureen who has such an advanced leadership philosophy. From a leadership maturity point of view, she is in the post-conventional stages of leadership maturity, which means that she can see and operate in high degrees of complexity and ambiguity, and that she has a very human-centric and world-centric perspective on leadership and people in general. And that is a rare thing. There's not that many leaders who reach those uh, later stages of leadership maturity. So it is a, a quite a privilege to interview her. In terms of takeaways, I guess a couple of key things for me was to give more and care more than anyone expects is a wonderful leadership philosophy in general. And to really think that every human, there is nothing general about humans. I think that kind of took me off guard. I sort of stumbled in the interview with that. I'm like, really? Are there patterns? And I loved how she says, when you zoom out, you think everybody's the same. When you zoom in, they're totally not. And I think I'm going to mull on this a little bit and really see what it means for looking at people and uh, processing who they are and appreciating who they are, especially as I'm writing my next book, People Stuff. So if you love this interview, make sure you do sign up for the blog. The link will be right there in the show notes. And I do hope you'll listen in to our next interview. Have a great day.